0: chapter 15 part 2 of mrs warren's daughter this librevox recording is in the public domain mrs warren's daughter by sir harry Johnston. chapter 15 imprisonment part 2 at intervals in the summer and early autumn of 1913 the male section of the public had been horrified and scandalized at the destruction going on in racing establishments particularly those of sir george crofts and of a well-known south american millionaire whose distinguished services to british commerce and immense donations to hospitals and homes would probably be rewarded by a grateful government if these outrages were not stopped horse-racing and race-horse breeding must come to a standstill and we leave our readers to realize what that would mean there would be no horses for the plough or the gig or the artillery gun-carriage no er fox-hunting and without fox-hunting and steeple-chasing and point-to-point races you could have no cavalry and without cavalry you could have no army if we neglected bloodstock we would deal the farmer a deadly blow we should er you know the sort of argument reduced to its essentials it is simply this that a few rich people are fond of gambling and fond of the excitement that is concentrated in the few minutes of the horse race. Some others, not so rich, believe that by combining horse racing with a certain amount of cunning and bold cheating, they can make a great deal of money. A few speculators have invested funds in spaces of open turf and turned these spaces into race courses. Having no alternative, no safer method of gambling offered them and being as fond of gambling as other peoples of the world the men of the labouring classes and a few of their women the publicans and their frequenters army officers farmers and women of uncertain virtue stake their money on horses they have never seen who may not even exist and thus keep the industry going and the chevaliers of this industry the go-betweens, the parasites of this sport, are the 12,000 professional bookmakers and racing touts. Somehow the turf has, during the last hundred years, together with its allies the distillers and brewers, the licensed victuallers and the press that is supported by these agencies, acquired such a hold over the government departments— the labor party the conservative party the liberal politicians who are descended from county families that it has more interest with those who govern us than the church the nonconformist conscience the county palatine of lancaster or any other body of corporate opinion so that when in september nineteen thirteen representatives of the turf and no doubt of the trade unions went to the Home Secretary in reference to the burning and bombing of racing stables, trainers' houses, grandstands, and the residences of racing potentates, and said, Look here, this has got to stop. The Home Secretary and Cabinet knew they were up against no ordinary crisis. At the same time Sir Edward Carson, the Marquis of Londonderry, the Duke of Abercorn, Mr. F. E. Smith and nearly a third of the colonels in the British Army of Ulster descent were actively organizing armed resistance to any measure of Home Rule, while Celt Iberian Ireland was setting up the Irish volunteers to start a Home Rule insurrection. You can therefore imagine for yourselves the mental irritability of members of the Liberal Cabinet in the autumn of the sinister year, 1913. I have been told that there were days at the House of Commons during the autumn session of that year when the leading ministers would just shut themselves up in their private rooms and scream on end for a quarter of an hour. Of course, an exaggeration, a sorry jest. In retrospect, one feels almost sorry for them. The great war must have come almost as a relief. Not one of them was what you would call a bad man— some of them suffered over forcible feeding and the cat-and-mouse act as acutely as does the loving father or mother who says to the recently spanked child, You know, dear, it hurts me almost as much as it hurts you. If one met them out at dinner parties or in an express train which they could not stop by pulling the communication cord and sympathized with their dilemma, they would ask plaintively what they could do they could not yield to violence and anarchy, yet they could not let women die in prison. Of course the answer was this, but it was one they waved aside—dissolve Parliament and go to the country on the one question of votes for women. If the country returns a great majority favorable to that concession, you must bring in a bill for eliminating the sex distinction in the suffrage. If, on the other hand, the country votes against the reform, then you must leave it to the women to make a male electorate change its mind. And meantime, if men and women, to enforce some principle, rioted and were sent to prison for it, and then started to abstain from food and drink, why, they must please themselves and die if they wanted to. But this was just what the Liberal Ministry of those days would not do. At all costs, they must stick to office, emoluments, patronage, the bestowal of honors, and the control of foreign policy. They clung to power, in fact, at all costs, even in consistency with the bedrock principle of liberalism, no taxation without representation. It was decided in the innermost arcana of the Home Office that an example should be made of Vivie. They had evidently, in her, got hold of something far more dangerous than a Pankhurst or a Pethick Lawrence, a Constance Lytton, or an Emily Davison. The very probable story, though the benchers were loath to take it up, that she had actually, in men's garb, passed for the bar and pleaded successfully before juries, appalled some of the lawyer ministers by its revolutionary audacity they might not be able to punish her on that count or on several others of the misdemeanours imputed to her but they had got her for sure on arson and on the arson not of suburban churches which occurred sometimes at peckham or in the suburbs of birmingham and made people laugh a little in the trains coming up to town and say there were far too many churches seemed to them but the burning down of racing establishments that was Bolshevism indeed, they would have said, had they been able to project their minds five years ahead. Being only in 1913, they called Vivie by the enfeebled term of anarchist, the word applied by Punch to Mr. John Burns in 1888 for wishing to address the public in Trafalgar Square. So it was arranged that Vivie's trial should take place in October at the Old Bailey, and that a judge should try her, who was quite certain he had never stayed at a Warren hotel, who would be careful to keep great names out of court, and restrain counsel from dragging anything in to the simple and provable charge of arson which might give Miss Warren a chance to say something those beastly newspapers would get hold of. I'm not going to give you the full story of Vivie's trial. I've got so much else to say about her before I can leave her in a quiet backwater of middle age that this must be a story which has gaps to be filled up by the reader's imagination. You can, besides, read for yourself elsewhere, for this is a thinly-veiled chronicle of real events, how she was charged, and how the magistrate refused bail, though it was offered in large amounts by Rossiter and Prod, the latter with Mrs. Warren's purse behind him, how she was first lodged in Brixton Prison, and at length appeared in the dock at the Old Bailey, before a court that might have been set for a cinematograph. There was a judge with a full-bottomed wig, a scarlet and ermine vesture, there was a jury of prosperous shopkeepers, retired half-pay officers, a hotel-keeper or two, a journalist, an architect, and a builder. A very celebrated King's Counsel prosecuted, the cabinet thus said to the racing world, We've done all we can, and Vivie defended herself with the aid of a clever solicitor whom Bertie Adams had found for her. From the very moment of her arrest, Bertie Adams had refused, even though they took away his salary, to think of anything but Vivie's trial, and how she might issue from it triumphant. He must have lost a stone in weight. He was ready to give evidence himself, though he was really quite unconcerned with the offenses for which Vivie was on trial, prepared to swear to anything, to swear he arranged the conflagrations, that Miss Warren had really been in London when witnesses had seen her purchasing explosives at Newmarket. Both stories were equally untrue. Bertie Adams only asked to be allowed to perjure himself to the tune of five years' penal servitude if that would set Vivie free. Yet, at a word or a look from her, he became manageable. The Attorney General, of course, began something like this i am very anxious to impress on you he said addressing the jury that from the moment we begin to deal with the facts of this case all questions of whether a woman is entitled to the parliamentary franchise whether she should have the same right of franchise as a man are matters which in no sense are involved in the trial of this issue all you have to decide is whether the prisoner in the dock committed or procured and assisted others to commit the very serious acts of arson of which she is accused. Nevertheless, he or the hounds he kept in leash, the lesser counsel, sought subtly to prejudice the jury's mind against Vivie by dragging in her parentage and the eccentricities of her own career. As thus, counsel for the prosecution, we have in you the mainspring of this rebellious movement. Vivie, have you? Counsel, are you not the daughter of the notorious mrs warren vivie my mother's name certainly is warren for what is she notorious counsel well er for being associated abroad with er a certain type of hotel synonymous with a disorderly house vivie indeed have you tried them my mother has managed the hotels of an english company abroad till she retired altogether from the management some years ago it was a company in which sir george crofts Judge interposing, we need not go into that i think the counsel for the prosecution is not entitled to ask such questions counsel i submit milud that it is germane to my case that the prisoner's upbringing might have vivie i am quite willing to give you all the information i possess as to my upbringing my mother, who has resided mainly at Brussels for many years, preferred that I should be educated in England. I was placed at well-known boarding schools till I was old enough to enter Newnham. I passed as a third wrangler at Cambridge, and then joined the firm of Fraser and Warren. As you seem so interested in my relations, I might inform you that I have not many. My mother's sister, Mrs. Burstall, the widow of Canon Burstall, resides at Winchester, my grandfather, Lieutenant Warren, was killed in the Crimea, or more likely died of neglected wounds owing to the shamefully misconducted, man-conducted army medical service of those days. My mother in early days was better known as Miss Kate Vavasour; She was the intimate friend of a celebrated barrister who— Judge intervening. We have had enough of this discursive evidence which really does not bear on the case at all. I must ask the prosecuting counsel to keep to the point and not waste the time of the court. Prosecuting counsel, who has meantime received three or four energetic notes from his leader, begging him to remember his instructions and not to be an ass. Very good, m'lud. To Vivie, Do you know Mr. David Vavasor Williams, a barrister? Vivie, I have heard of him. COUNSEL, HAVE YOU SPOKEN OF HIM AS YOUR COUSIN? Vivie? I MAY HAVE DONE. HE IS CLOSELY RELATED TO ME. COUNSEL, I PUT IT TO YOU THAT YOU ARE DAVID WILLIAMS, OR AT ANY RATE THAT YOU HAVE POSED AS BEING THAT PERSON. JUDGE, INTERPOSING WITH A WEARY AIR, WHO IS DAVID WILLIAMS? COUNSEL, WELL, ER, A MEMBER OF THE BAR, WELL KNOWN IN THE CRIMINAL COURTS, SHALITO CASE. Judge. Really? I had not heard of him. Proceed. Counsel. To Vivie, You heard my questions? Vivie, I have never posed as being, other than what I am, a woman much interested in claiming the parliamentary franchise for women, and I do not see what these questions have to do with my indictment, which is a charge of arson. You introduce all manner of irrelevant matter. Counsel. You decline to answer my questions?' Vivie turns her head away. Judge to counsel, I do not quite see the bearing of your inquiries. Counsel, why, Milud, it is common talk that prisoner is the well-known barrister David Vavasour Williams, that in this disguise, and as a pretended man, she passed the necessary examinations, and was called to the bar, and— Judge, but what bearing has this on the present charge, which is one of arson? Counsel, I was endeavouring by my examination to show that the prisoner has often and successfully passed as a man, and that the evidence of witnesses who affirmed that they only saw a young man at or near the scene of these incendiary fires, that a young man supposed to have set the stables alight, once dashed in and rescued two horses which had been overlooked, might well have been the prisoner— who is alleged to have committed most of these crimes in man's apparel. Judge, I see. To Vivie, Are you David Vavasor Williams? Vivie, Obviously not, my lord. My name is Vivian Warren, and my sex is feminine. Judge, to counsel. Well, proceed with your examination. But here the leader of the prosecution takes up the role and brushes his junior on one side. Vivi, of course, was convicted. The case was plain from the start as to her guilt in having organized and carried out the destruction of several great racing establishments, or buildings connected with racing. There had been no loss of life, but great damage to property, perhaps two or three hundred thousand pounds, and a serious interruption in the racing fixtures of the late summer and early autumn. The jury took note that on one occasion the prisoner, in the guise of a young man, had personally carried out the rescue of two endangered horses, and added a faintly worded recommendation to Mercy, seeing that the incentive to the crimes was political passion. But the judge put this on one side. In passing sentence, he said, It is my duty, Vivian Warren, to inflict what in my opinion is a suitable and adequate sentence for the crime of which you have been most properly convicted. I must point out to you that whatever may have been your motives, your deeds have been truly wicked, because they have exposed hard-working people who have done you no wrong to the danger of being burnt, maimed, or killed, or at the least to the loss of employment. You have destroyed property of great value, belonging to persons in no way concerned with the granting or withholding of the rights you claim for women." In addition, you have for some time past been luring other people, young men and young women, to the committal of crime as your assistants or associates. I cannot regard your case as having any political justification or standing, or as being susceptible of any mitigation by the recommendation of the jury. The least sentence I can pass upon you is a sentence of three years' penal servitude. Vivie took the blow without flinching, and merely bowed to the judge. There was the usual sensation in court. Women's voices were heard, saying, "'Shame! Shame! Three cheers for Vivie Warren!' And a slightly ironical, Three cheers for David, what you may call him, Williams!' The judge uttered the usual unavailing threats of prison for those who profaned the majesty of the court, Honoria, Rossiter, Prade, in tears, Bertie Adams, looking white and ill, all the noted suffragists who were out of prison for the time being and could obtain admittance to the court, crowded round Vivie before the wardresses led her away from the dock, assuring her they would move heaven and earth, first to get the sentence mitigated, and secondly to have her removed to the first division. But on both points the government proved adamant, an interview between Rossiter and the Home Secretary nearly ended in a personal assault. All the officials concerned refused to see Honoria, who almost had a serious quarrel with her husband, the latter averring that Vivian Warren had only got what she asked for. Vivian was therefore taken to Holloway to serve her sentence as a common felon. Didn't she hunger strike to force the authorities to accord her better prison treatment? She did— but she was very soon, and with extra business like brutality, forcibly fed, and that and the previous starvation made her so ill that she spent weeks in hospital. Here it was very plainly hinted to her that between hunger-striking and forcible feeding she might very soon die, and that in her case the government were prepared to stand the racket, Moreover, she heard by some intended channel about this time that scores of imprisoned suffragists were hunger-striking to secure her better treatment, and were endangering, if not their lives, at any rate their future health and validity. So she conveyed them an earnest message, and was granted facilities to do so, imploring them to do nothing more on her account, adding that she was resolved to go through with her imprisonment, it might teach her valuable lessons the governor of the prison fortunately was a humane and reasonable man unlike some of the home office or scotland yard officials he read the newspapers and reviews of the day and was aware who vivie warren was he probably made no unfair difference in her case from any other but so far as he could mould and bend the prison discipline and rules it was his practice not to use a razor for stone chipping or a cold chisel for shaving he therefore put vivie to tasks coordinated with her ability and the deftness of her hands such as bookbinding she had of course to wear prison dress a thing of no importance in her eyes and her cell was like all cells in that and other British prisons previous to the newest reforms—dark, rather damp, cruelly cold in winter, and disagreeable in smell, badly ventilated and oppressively ugly. But it was at any rate clean. She had not the cockroaches, bugs, fleas, and lice that the earliest suffragists of 1908 had to complain of five years of outspoken protests on the part of educated, delicate-minded women had wrought great reforms in our prisons, the need for which till then was not apparent to the perceptions of visiting magistrates. The food was better, the wardresses were less harsh, the chaplains a little more endurable, though still the worst feature in the prison personnel, with their unreasoning bibliolatry, their contemptuous patronage, their lack of Christian pity—Christ had never spoken to them, Vivy often thought—their snobbishness. The chaplain of her imprisonment became quite chummy when he learnt that she had been a third wrangler at Cambridge, New Lady Phoenix, and had lived in Kensington prior to committing the offences for which she was imprisoned. However, this helped to alleviate her dreary seclusion from the world— as he occasionally dropped fragments of news as to what was going on outside, and he got her books through the prison library, which were not evangelical pap. One day, when she had been in prison two months, she had a great surprise, a visit from her mother. Strictly speaking, this was only to last fifteen minutes, but the wardress who had conceived a liking for her intimated that she wouldn't look too closely at her watch. Honoria came, too, with Mrs. Warren, but after kissing her friend and leaving some beautiful flowers, which the wardress took away at once with pretended sternness and brought back in a vase after the visitors had left, Honoria, with glistening eyes and a smile that was all tremulous sweetness, intimated that Mrs. Warren had so much to say that she, Honoria, was not going to stay more than that one minute— "'Mrs. Warren had indeed so much to impart in the precious half-hour "'that it was one long, gabbled monologue. "'When I heard you'd got into trouble, my darling, I was put about. "'Somehow I'd never thought of your being pinched and actually sent to prison. "'It was in the Belgian papers, and a German friend of mine— "'oh, quite proper, I assure you, he's a secretary of their legation at Brussels, "'and ages ago he used to be one of my clients when the hotel had a different name.' Well, he was full of it. Madam, he said, your English women are splendid. They're going to bring about a revolt, you'll see, and that and your Ulster movement'll give you a lot of trouble next year. Well, I wrote at once to Proddy, giving him an order on my London agents, case he should want cash for your defence. I offered to come over myself, but he replied that for the present I'd better keep away." "'Soon as I heard you was sent to prison, "'I come over and went straight to proddy. "'My, he was good. "'He made me put up with him, knowin' I wanted to live quiet "'and keep away from the old set. "'There's my parlour-maid,' he says, "'sort of housekeeper to me. "'Good sort, too, but wants a bit of humourin'. "'You'll fix it up with her,' he says, "'and I jolly soon did. "'I give her to begin with a good tip, "'and I said, "'Look here, my gal, She's forty-five, I should think. Everyone's in trouble some time or other in their lives, and I'm in trouble now, if you like. And the day's come, I said, when all women ought to stick by one another. Pears she's always had the highest opinion of you, very different you was from some of her master's friends. I says, right then now we know where we are. "'Proddy soon got in touch with the authorities, "'but for some reason they wouldn't pass on a letter "'or let me come and see you till to-day. "'But here I am, and here I'm going to stay, with Praddy, "'till they lets you out. "'I'm told that if you behave yourself, "'they'll let me send you a passel of food once a week. "'Think of that. "'My, won't I find some goodies and pâté de foie gras. "'I'll come here once a month, as often as they'll let me, "'till I gets you out.' "'and after that we'll leave this orrid, hypocritical old country "'and live appily at my villa, or travel a bit. "'Fortunately, I've plenty of money. "'Being over here, I've been rearranging my investments a bit. "'Fact is, I had a bit of a scare this autumn. "'They say in Belgium war is comin'. "'Talking to this same German, "'he's always pumpin' me about the suffragettes, "'so I occasionally put a question or so to him, "'e' knowin' what's what in the money market.' "'He says to me, just before I come over, "'What's your English proverb, Madame Varens, "'about having all your eggs in one basket? "'Is all your money in English and Belgian securities?' "'I says, chiefly Belgian and German and Austrian, "'and some I've give to me daughter to do as she likes with. "'Well,' he says, "'friend speakin' to friend. "'You've give me several good tips this autumn,' he says. "'Now I'll give you one in return. "'Sell out your Austrian investments.' "'There's going to be a big war in the Balkans next year, "'and as like as not, we shall be here in Belgium. "'Sell out most of your Belgian stock "'and put all your money into German funds. "'They'll be safe there, come what may.' "'I thanked him, but haven't quite done what he suggested. "'I'm taking all my money out of Austrian things "'and all but ten thousand out of Belgian funds. "'I'm leaving my German stock as it was, "'but I'm putting forty thousand pounds, "'I've got sixty thousand altogether.' all yours some day, into Canadian Pacifics and Royal Mail. People'll always want steamships, and New Zealand five per cents. I don't like the look of things in old England, nor yet on the continent. Now me time's up. Keep up your heart, old girl. It'll soon be over, especially if you don't play the fool and rile the prison people, or start that silly hunger strike and ruin your digestion. G- Goodbye, and... "'God bless you, my darling,' added Mrs. Warren, relapsing into tears and the conventional prayer of common humanity, which always hopes there may be a pitiful deity somewhere in Cosmos. Going out into the corridor, she attempted to press a sovereign into the wardress's hard palm. The latter indignantly repudiated the gift, and said if Mrs. Warren tried on such a thing again, her visits would be stopped.' But her indignation was very brief. She was carrying honoria's flowers at the time, and as she put them on the slab in Vivie's cell, she remarked that, say what you liked, there was nothing to come up to a mother. Give her a mother rather than a man any day. On other occasions Bertie Adams came with Mrs. Warren, even Professor Rossiter, who also went to see Vivie's mother at prods and conceived a whimsical liking for the unrepentant, outspoken old lady. Vivie's health gradually recovered from the effects of the forcible feeding. The prison fare, supplemented by the weekly parcels, suited her digestion. The peace of the prison life and the regular work at interesting trades soothed her nerves. She enjoyed the respite from the worries of her complicated toilettes, the perplexity of what to wear and how to wear it in short she was finding a spell of prison life quite bearable except for the cold and the attentions of the chaplain she gathered from the fortnightly letter which her industry and good conduct allowed her to receive and to answer that unwearied efforts were being made by her friends outside to shorten her sentence Mrs. Warren, through Bertie Adams, had found out the cases where jockeys and stable lads had lost their effects in the fires or explosions which had followed Vivie's visits to their employers' premises, and had made good their losses. As to their employers, they had all been heavily insured, and recovered the value of their buildings, and as to the insurance companies, they had all been so enriched by Mr. Lloyd George's legislation that the one or two hundred thousand pounds they had lost through vivie's revenge for the seemingly fruitless death of emily wilding davison was a bagatelle not worth bothering about but all attempts to get the home office to reconsider miss warren's case or to shorten her imprisonment except by the abridgment that could be earned in the prison itself were unavailing so long as the cabinet held vivie under lock and key the suffrage movement they foolishly believed was hamstrung so the months went by and vivie almost lost count of time and almost became content to wait till war was declared on august fourth nineteen fourteen a few days afterwards followed the amnesty to suffragist prisoners from this the home office strove at first to exclude Vivian warren on the plea that her crime was an ordinary crime, and admitted of no political justification. But at this the wrath of Rossiter and the indignation of the W.S.P.U. became so alarming that the agitated Secretary of State, not at all sure how we were going to come out of the war, gave way, and an order was signed for Vivie's release on the 11th of August, on the understanding that she would immediately proceed abroad, an understanding to which she would not subscribe but which in her slowly formed hatred of the british government she resolved to carry out mrs warren assured by praed and rossiter that vivie's release was a mere matter of a few days had left for brussels on the fifth of august if as was then hoped the french and belgian armies would suffice to keep the germans at bay on the frontier of belgium she would prefer to resume her life there in the Via de Beausjour. If, however, Belgium was going to be invaded, it was better she should secure her property as far as possible, transfer her funds, and make her way somehow to a safe part of France. Vivie would join her as soon as she could leave the prison. End of chapter 15, part 2